Hey, Whitney, how on earth Hello. are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. How are you? It's been a while. Oh my goodness. I got kicked off YouTube twice. They made me delete all the stuff I did with you as well yeah. as everything else on that subject. I had campaigns launched against me to destroy me, death threats, got called into the cop shop, got a caution from the police. The minute I touched the who killed Epstein case, my life just changed dramatically. Now, I imagine you've been through similar things. Yeah, well, censorship's been pretty bad for, I think, most people in the past couple of years, regardless of what you're talking about. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, for a lot of people, I guess it was stuff related to COVID-19, uh, but for you, it was not. So I think they just uh, took the opportunity to bring the censorship hammer around. I was deplatformed from Patreon, actually, uh, during this period. So I mostly got, like, financial censorship. I don't have a YouTube channel because I'm mainly a writer, right? So I don't really do... I have a podcast now, but I, um, you know, never went that route. Um, otherwise, I would have been kicked off too, because pretty much every show I, I ever go on is like off YouTube now. So, what reason did Patreon cite to get 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 you off the platform? Um, so it was about an article that had to do with uh, what was previously the Galton Institute. Uh, after my article, they renamed it to Adelphi. Uh, it used to be the British Eugenics Society. And I talked about how the developer of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Stop, 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 stop. Because we're on Patreon right now, this is uh, not a good avenue to go down to repeat this. So let's, let's okay. change the subject. Um, congratulations on your two <laughs> books. For the viewers who are not familiar with your work, can you just introduce yourself firstly? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Whitney Webb. I am a writer and a researcher. Um, I investigate stuff. Um, and um, I've written about a lot of other stuff besides Epstein, but I think most people know or learned of me originally because of a four-part series I did for Mint Press News back when I worked there in 2019. Um, I left there in the beginning of 2020 and set up my own website, which is called Unlimited Hangout, and have some other people um, that right there that contribute there as well. Um, and I've continued Epstein stuff since then. Uh, but you know, it's the, a lot has been going on in the world. So I've been covering other things as well. So it's not, hasn't been Epstein exclusive, but while that uh, was going on, you know, in, in January, 2020, I was asked to write, a, expand my Mint Press series into a book and I expanded it probably too much because it ended up being two books. Um, <laughs> but it was, always, it was always planned to be written as, as in, in like two parts, right? So the first part is um, sort of like the original series. Like I said, it was four parts. So the first two parts were sort of like pre-Epstein history. And then parts three and four were about Epstein. So that's basically how this is. So there's volume one and there's volume two. Of, uh, the book is One Nation Under Blackmail. Um, so volume two is about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Leslie Wexner, Galene Maxwell, uh, my deep dive on on all of that stuff. And then volume one is sort of the... Um, the prehistory that I honestly think is really necessary to understand the Epstein stuff, particularly if you want to understand the intelligence connections, because if you want to discuss, for example, um, 
like the Epstein Adnan Khashoggi relationship, you had to know who Adnan Khashoggi was and what he did, right? You have to know about things like uh, Iran Contra, including to understand Robert Maxwell, for example. You have to know about the Promise Software scandal, uh, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, VCCI, and all of these other uh, scandals in the 80s and, and before then, and also how sex blackmail in, in this particular network has played a role uh, going back to uh, when organized crime and, and U.S. intelligence formally teamed up. Um, in World War II, in what is uh, what begins my book, which is uh, Operation Underworld, which was an actual formal alliance between organized crime and U.S. intelligence. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's basically, uh, I guess, <laughs> the briefest overview of the book possible without getting into any details. Um, I didn't focus so much on the sex trafficking stuff when it comes to Epstein. Volume two is uh, about 500 pages. Most of it are the intelligence and organized crime connections you haven't heard about. Um, and it's it's much more uh, extensive than what I had even thought it was, <laughs> it was going to be, to be honest. Um, and it's it's a lot more than just sex trafficking. But I do talk about the sex trafficking. Um, and I think even there, um, you know, there's um, some things I noticed, like I think that there was sort of two parallel sex trafficking operations going on. So there's the one that everyone knows about. And then it seems like there were some women that were um, seen as a different type of asset. And so instead of being exploited and, and abused and dumped, they were um, educated or um, used as more sophisticated assets, I guess you could say, and became like girlfriends of or the wives of people in this network. Um, and those women in particular, when you ask them how they feel about Jeffrey Epstein, even today, they're just fawning over him. I mean, it's like night and day when you compare it to um, the Epstein victims that we all are, are familiar with. So I think, you know, even in talking about that, there's um, been some aspects of the case that just haven't really gotten a lot of coverage in general. I think one of the overall um, themes, though, is that Epstein was just as much a financial criminal as a sexual criminal. And so his involvement with intelligence involved a lot of financial crimes, money laundering. Um, and probably the most stunning stuff to me was um, the nature of his meetings at the Clinton White House. Um, which are nuts. So I'll uh, leave it there. I don't know if you want to get into anything in particular. Happy to talk about whatever. Okay, great. So let's go over some of the basics then before we get more heavy. And it was the deconstructing the war on drugs and mass incarceration is what led me to Barry Seal, which led me to Air America, Sovereign Air Transport, Wexner, um, relocation to Ohio and then Epstein. How did you arrive at Epstein? Um, so I guess I, you mean before why I started writing about him when I was at Mint Press? Uh, I think it was just to your attention. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, everyone knew about it when he was arrested, right? I mean, it was all over the media. I only really got interested when there was the, the claim, um, from Alex Acosta that he had signed off on the so-called sweetheart deal of Epstein because he was told that Epstein belonged to intelligence and to leave it alone. So I wanted to get to the bottom of those intelligence connections. Um, that was really the only thing I was, uh, you know, interested in initially, but it obviously expanded from there. And, um, you know, I've, I've pretty much written a, um, a book about Epstein and his um, entire network <laughs> uh, now. Well, now I'm on the other side <laughs> of the screen. Okay. What were the most startling revelations as you began to investigate this story? Um, so I think it has to do with um, what I mentioned a second ago, that the financial crimes are are very substantial. 
when it comes to Epstein and that there's been a, a I think, you know, I, I tried to scratch the surface of, of, or really get into as much as I could. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that I think still has to come out. So basically when you look at, for example, the relocation of Southern air transport, uh, to Columbus, Ohio, which, which Epstein and Wexner were both involved in for the limited, uh, that basically saw Columbus, Ohio become the new Mena, Arkansas. Uh, for the 1990s. And there was some really crazy stuff going on there. Um, and it's, you know, a, I'm of the opinion, and I, I detail this in the book considerably, that the decision to have Southern Air Transport move there is directly related to what Epstein was doing at the White House at the same time. And I say this because um, the Southern Air Transport uh, route, once it, you know, originally it was going from Latin America to the U.S. Um, previously, it was, or and, and by the time it gets to Columbus, it's going from uh, Columbus, Ohio to Hong Kong. So it's going to China, basically, and into the U.S. And so Wexner does have business interests in the U in China that you can sort of explain, right? But why Southern Air Transport? Well, it turns out that they wanted not just Southern Air Transport. Before Southern Air Transport, they tried to get connected with another CIA-linked airline called Aero Air. So it, it's like that airport is just totally nuts. Um, you also have in the mix there Executive Jet Aviation, which is the Larry King Franklin scandal airline. Um, and um, I mean, it's just out of control, uh, personally, uh, I think. So Mark Middleton is the person that Epstein was meeting with at the White House, most at least most frequently with. And Mark Middleton was at the center of what is remembered today by a lot of conservatives as China Gate, uh, but it involves Hong Kong, it involves Singapore, it involves Taiwan, and um, it's not. I think China Gate's kind of a misnomer. It's really more accurately accurately called maybe Riyadi Gate for the family of Mokhtar Riyadi, which is, um, you know, like Jackson Stevens. Well, you were talking about Barry Seal, so I assume your audience is sort of familiar with the Clinton-Iran-Contra stuff. So Jackson Stevens is like a major force behind the Clinton family and a lot of uh, the webs of his companies and all that stuff were woven through like the Mena, Arkansas story and the rise of, of Clinton. And there with Stevens is a guy named Mokhtar Riyadi. So that particular network of business partners is what's really at the heart of China Gate. And it looks like it was a massive... Um, arms trafficking operation and technology transfer operation with technology from the U.S. going to China. And it looks like that's what Southern Air Transport and the Limited was used for. And I talk about a lot of the other um, supporting evidence for that, what was going on in quote unquote China Gate and all of this stuff. And then the, um, the details of the Southern Air Transport relocation and negotiations and all of that. And it's, um, it's a very unsettling situation. So, you know, when you consider something like the work of Gary Webb and Dark Alliance, right, and he's talking about how through Iran-Contra, this network was, was bringing in intentionally importing crack cocaine, like into urban areas, it seems like they were importing cheap Chinese-made weapons into those same urban areas to create that same chaos. And so that seems to be at least part of what um, Southern Air Transport, when it was, you know, basically under Wexner's purview uh, was engaged in and people, you know, like Ohio's inspector general knew that it was tied to organized crime and intelligence and things were very sus suspect. Um, you know, and, and it's just a, it's really disturbing stuff. I, you know, and I don't, 
Uh, I don't know how much more can really be found unless, you know, you get into subpoenas or people like decide to offer information, like based on the open source stuff, there's been a major effort to cover what was going on there up. And so I think that's part of why, even though, for example, last year you have pictures of of Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell shaking hands with Bill Clinton in 1993 being published by the UK's Daily Mail. Uh, no one in mainstream media in the US covers it at all. And they still act like Bill Clinton and Epstein didn't meet until after Bill Clinton was no longer president and stuff. Um, yeah, so there's obviously a lot more going on there. A really good indicator of that is that Mark Middleton, um, Congress was trying to investigate his role in all of this specifically in the weeks before, well, in the last years of the Clinton administration and the early years of uh, George W. Bush. And then a few weeks before 9-11, um, George W. Bush invokes executive privilege for the first time. And when he's invoked and he does that expressly to block documents relating to Mark Middleton by name and Mark Middleton officially ostensibly was just a uh, aide to the guy who was then a special advisor to the president. He doesn't really seem like a big fish. Right. And this is someone from the subsequent administration stepping in to cover his tracks. Why is that? Obviously, Mark Middleton was involved in something that would have been damaging to both the Bush and Clinton families if exposed. So that suggests it's the same network really in, oper in, in operation because the network at the core of Iran-Contra, I mean, obviously involved both the Bush and Clinton families uh, in, in that type of network. Um, so um, that was probably the stuff uh, in writing the book that surprised me the most. Other things, uh, Leslie Wexner telling New York Magazine in 1985 that he's possessed by a demon that tells him what to do. Um, that was that was insane, uh, but it's real. You can go and look it up. It's called The Bachelor Billionaire, uh, New York Magazine. I believe it's August 1985. Uh, he talks about how uh, he has a, a demon inside him that tells him what to do and makes him accumulate more wealth and power and gobble up business after business and do what he does. And that is around, um, you know, the same year that he, you know, linked up with Jeffrey Epstein, that his tax attorney was shot in the face. Um, you know, I mean, it's very hard to read my book, particularly the chapters on Wexner and not see Leslie Wexner as like a kingpin of organized crime. Uh, he's very clearly that. And he's untouchable because nothing's happened to him whatsoever, despite whatever. Yeah, and said. it won't. Uh, I mean, unless, you know, something really substantial happens. But, I, you know, with the current system the way it is, there's no way they'll ever go after Wexner. So we recently interviewed Juliet Bryant, who spent two years with Epstein and Maxwell. Have you spoke to her? Uh, no. She said that Clinton was on the phone communicating with Epstein almost weekly while she was with them and it, it, what year was of, this um I'd have to go back and research that it's on my rumble if people want to watch that the video is on my rumble it's called my two years of Epstein and Maxwell Juliet Bryant uh, maybe Ash my research who's watching could, could could check that out for the years but I can't remember exactly but just blows away what Clinton officially said about having hardly anything to do with him. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because I think one of the reasons they, they won't pursue the Epstein-Clinton relationship is because of the, um, fi the financial stuff. 
So, you know, I, I'm sure your audience is familiar with Epstein and Steve Hoffenberg team up and they create this Ponzi scheme that collapses Towers Financial. And then Epstein's name is dropped from the case. And that happens in 1993. Hoffenberg goes to prison, but Epstein is basically going to the White House straight away. And the first person he meets with there, uh, he's brought signed in by Robert Rubin, who later becomes Treasury Secretary. But at the time, I think he's head of the National Council for um, Economic. I can't remember the exact name. It's like a sort like a, a Council of Economic Advisors to the President. I can't remember the exact name of the the body. Um, but before that point, uh, Robert Rubin was head of Goldman Sachs, so he was intimately involved, at, if not in the execution of, but the the cover up or you know the fallout from Robert Maxwell's um, you know financial crimes, which involved. Goldman Sachs to a significant degree or Goldman Sachs was, you know, being blamed in the press as an accessory to those financial crimes. So very interesting to see Robert, Robert Rubin being the person that's bringing Epstein, you know, into the white house, because, you know, at that point, the relationship, uh, public relationship between him and Ghislaine Maxwell is already cemented. Right. Um, so after that, you have Epstein being involved in this donor uh, this fundraiser event that ends up making an appearance in Vince Foster's suicide note. So that's bizarre. I will quote unquote suicide note. It's widely believed to be forged and was pretty much written by Hillary Clinton. And the fundraiser was basically run by Hillary Clinton. She was supposed to be redecorating the White House with those funds. But you have people tied to BCCI, uh, people tied to organized crime in the Bahamas. You have Epstein. I mean, it's like uh, a real hive of of suspect people and to see it in the, in the Vince Foster, the Vince Foster suicide note is like pretty insane. Um, when you consider all the intrigue around that particular death and then he pops up again, hanging out with Mark Middleton at the white house multiple times, most of his 17 visits, um, were with Mark Middleton and Mark Middleton is at the center of this China gate thing, which the other name for it is like the campaign finance scandal of 1996, again, around controversial fundraisers. And then, after being involved basically in the most controversial fundraisers while Clinton is president, Epstein's basically involved with the setup of the Clinton Foundation, which is the Clinton Family Slush Fund, basically. Um, so what you basically have there is Epstein being a major enabler of Clinton family financial crimes. And it appears that he was involved with the Clinton Foundation uh, well after he said he wasn't anymore. And Ghislaine was the public face of like their involvement with the Clinton Foundation through like Taramar and the, the Clinton stuff. Um, and I say this because in, in 2012, um, Epstein gave testimony in the Virgin Islands. It was related to his efforts to establish this weird, uh, what he called a biomedical Google company. Uh, he wanted to gene sequence like all the people in the Virgin Islands. Um, but um, in that testimony, he says, uh, I do a lot of work in Africa. And then he says, Africa is the perfect place to experiment. So that's unsettling uh, in and of itself. But when you consider that Epstein has no public presence in Africa at the time, no philanthropic body tied to Africa. Uh, where does Epstein pop up in Africa? Well, it's the Africa trip with Clinton, where the Clinton Health Access Initiative was being set up. You have people in, in, intimately involved with that on Epstein's plane at the time. 
along with Clinton. You know, most people focus on Ken Spacey and uh, Kevin Spacey and people like that on the plane uh, during that particular trip. But the the people that are relevant to the the Clinton health stuff, um, you know, are Gail King, uh, Era Magaziner, Doug Band, and of course, Bill Clinton himself. And Bill Clinton, before Epstein's first arrest, basically credited Bill Clinton, uh, Epstein with developing his, you know, the HIV AIDS stuff that was at the center of uh, the Clinton Health Access Initiative. So in 2012, how was Epstein doing a lot of work in Africa? That seems to be the only indication. So I think they don't want to get into the Epstein-Clinton relationship really at all. And they haven't bothered to. There's a lot that could come out. I mean, mainstream people and mainstream media have resources. I'm a mom with an internet connection in Chile. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote a 900 page book about this stuff. Um, you know, if I had like resources and access to people like in the U.S., like mainstream media does, this would have gone a lot farther. So we were talking to Hoffman and we were going to interview him and then he died. Mm -hmm. Is there anything suspicious about his death as far as you're concerned? Um, so I'm not really familiar, uh, with the exact circumstances. I know that, uh, Maria Farmer has said that she requested a wellness check well before they actually went to conduct one, the, the local police where he lived. Um, but I'm not familiar with the circumstances of why she requested that wellness check. It may have just been a lack of communication. Um, the thing that seems odd to me is that he had to be identified by his teeth, by dental records. He was allegedly really badly composed, decomposed by the time they found him, but they also claimed he'd only been dead for a few days. So to be that badly decomposed, it's kind of, you know, but I'm not an expert in decomposition and stuff. It is a little eyebrow raising to say the least um just because of the timing and you have earlier this year like mark middleton dying under very suspicious circumstances there yeah but with um with him it, it's hard to know with hoffenberg to be honest because he wasn't exactly a young guy you know so matthew steeples is asking for your thoughts on the 500 million pounds looted by robert maxwell from the pension of mirror group newspapers uh, yeah. So, uh, what exactly, what exactly about that? Uh, just what I, specific... I, I think it was an awful financial crime, <laughs> but I don't know where the money went. If that's what the question is. I mean, I think a lot of basically what Epstein was doing or what, what Maxwell was doing at the time is what Epstein was sort of doing at towers financial, you know, moving money that moving money around constantly to create basically the illusion that you have capital. And so, you know, basically Maxwell by the end of his life was, um, you know, juggling too much, I guess you could say. And, you know, his financial empire was in disarray and they were trying to shuffle all these assets and different things all around and eventually got in the, in the, in the pension fund. Um, but there's a lot of different, it's really hard to know about Robert Maxwell's finances. He had a bunch of trust in Liechtenstein. He had tax havens all over uh, the Soviet Union or former Soviet Union, like Bulgaria, um, basically used the country of Bulgaria as his personal bank and stuff. Um, and so, I mean, he, this guy had money like all over the place, hidden all over the place. I don't, allegedly his children didn't even know where it all was, but I don't believe that. I think they probably knew because <laughs> uh, they were involved in a lot of it even after he was uh, he was dead so um you know as far as the as the pension fund goes i mean it's an it's an obvious crime and shows that people like this uh, don't give a flying f about 
the workers in their companies and uh you know sort of speaks to well i mean he's not the only one to have done this either including in this network i mean these guys dip into pension funds all the time particularly the people that are framed sort of as corporate raiders of that period and maxwell was in that category and there were a lot of people in that category that end up in this particular network like people like Ron Perlman, for example, ends up sort of in the Epstein orbit um, and hosts a controversial fundraiser that Epstein attends for Bill Clinton in 1996. Well, I think it was 95, but for the 96 election. Um, and he's a Drexel Burnham Lambert guy. Leon Black was there, also a corporate raider. You know, um, you have uh, James Goldsmith, who also has Epstein connections uh, associated with Robert Maxwell, corporate raider. All these guys engage in massive financial crimes all the time. And it's normal for them. Uh, Robert Maxwell just got caught and you could argue he only really got caught because he died and the whole thing fell apart because he wasn't there to manage to manage it really um, so you know the whole death of Robert Maxwell is also like a complicated can of worms too because we don't it's most likely he was killed but it's hard to know exactly who killed him and why so a lot of people think you know even Ghislaine right thinks it's Mossad renegades and that's sort of the narrative of Gordon Thomas and his book that it was like sort of a renegade faction in Israeli intelligence. It may not have been so renegade. A lot of crazy stuff was going on in 1991. You have the collapse of the Soviet Union. Some of the people that Robert Maxwell was closest to in the KGB uh, attempt a failed coup against Gorbachev. But Maxwell also had a friendly relationship with Gorbachev himself. Um, a bunch of people involved in the Promise software scandal, aside from Maxwell, also die in 1991. Um, and you have like all sorts of stuff, uh, changes going on in that period. You know, it, it, he had his hand in so many pies. He could have easily pissed off, uh, numerous people. They could have collaborated in his death. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, unfortunately, um, about exactly what was going on there. And from my research, it seems like that, uh, the Maxwell children, particularly like Ghislaine did not, uh, had, a very different plan if her father had not died at the time he died, that she was basically acting as his ambassador, his emissary. And uh, she end up, ends up, you know, attaching herself to Epstein as sort of like a replacement uh, for her, you know, to be his appendage when she can't be her father's appendage, basically. Um, yeah, you know, because it seems like at the time, Robert Maxwell wanted her to marry a Kennedy. And because he saw himself as like basically making a, a Kennedy clan, the Maxwells were going to be like the Kennedy family. That's all the stuff he wanted. And he was basically shopping her around to <laughs> different siblings of our siblings, different, um, you know, different people in the Kennedy family trying to get some sort of relationship established there. So that's the whole history of the, you know, well, there's a whole history there that I go into in, in, in the book um, specifically about the Kennedy stuff. Because there's a lot that hasn't really been made public. Because, <laughs> it, it, like, U.S. tabloids have pictures of her basically flirting with Kennedy men, and but they won't say it's her name. They'll say like it's a it's a brunette, a vivacious brunette, and all of this stuff. And it's obviously her um, in the pictures. And and one of it is like the 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 Carrie Kennedy Andrew Cuomo wedding that Ghislaine Maxwell attended. Um, there are pictures there and she's like, you know, the caption makes it very clear that it was a flirtatious discussion with, I think, Joe, uh, Joseph Kennedy Jr. Something like that. So there's a lot of crazy um, stuff going on there, but it seems like Robert Maxwell was trying to like use her, you know, sort of like royal families did in yesteryear, forge alliances with other powerful families and stuff. I mean, he, you know, 
wanted to do something like that. So when he's out of the picture, I don't think she really knows what to do because I think he had her from a very young age. You know, he set her up with all this stuff and told her what to do. And their relationship is very, has a lot of very dark subtext, I think very weird stuff about control and sex and all sorts of weird stuff. And that father daughter relationship that wasn't really a factor, I think with some of his other children or particularly his other daughters. So um, you know, it's it's complicated. So since we last spoke then, Leon Black stepped down from Apollo. In the beginning, people were like, you know, where did Epstein get all this money from? Yet it was revealed that Black paid Epstein $158 million for financial advice from 2012 to 2017. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Epstein is a master tax evader. And so that's why these people, you know, I mean, they're basically using people like the Clinton Foundation, right? I mean, Clinton Foundation wasn't openly managed by Epstein, but Epstein helped set it up, right? And so you have the Wexner Foundation, the Leon Black Family Foundation, and all these foundations sort of, you know, seeking advice from Epstein, even the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? You know, he becomes, he comes, he becomes a big guy in philanthropy after the year 2000. And at that same time, in the early 2000s is when this new model of philanthropy was sort of going live. Um, Sometimes it's called philanthropy 2.0, but it's basically, um, if you listen to Bill Gates talk about philanthropy, he'll throw out terms like return on investment when he's talking about philanthropic donations. Uh, So it's basically what, today is referred to as impact investing. It's not really philanthropy in a lot of time. And so it's like, it just basically a new um, <laughs> way, way to basically conduct a business and expand your power and influence, but you're framing yourself as a philanthropist. I mean, that's essentially what it is. So Epstein was like a big guy in that particular scene. And it's not really surprising why, because if you look into what he was doing when he was at Bear Stearns, for example, um, in the late seventies and through the early eighties, um, you know, uh, he's he's basically advising the wealthiest clients of Bear Stearns about tax evasion, the tax code specifically, and is an expert in taxes. Um, and then he gets involved with all this other shady financial stuff uh, throughout the 1980s. You know, this Adnan Khashoggi stuff and a parent relationship with BCCI. Um, he claims to be a financial bounty hunter uh, hiding and finding looted money and all of this stuff. I mean, he's obviously a financial criminal because after that he gets involved with uh, Leslie Wexner. Uh, when Leslie Wexner has tangled finances, particularly around the new Albany company that he has to then go and helps Wexner untangle and then becomes Wexner's money manager. And then at the same time, he's setting up this Ponzi scheme with Stephen Hoffenberg. And then goes to be a big financial fraudster in the political world with with the Clintons in the 1990s. Um, And and obviously there's other stuff going on in the 90s too. Um, It's not just the Clinton stuff. There's this big tech transfer stuff with Epstein, uh, Silicon Valley, Microsoft. It's very significant. Um, And that's where the Bill Gates Epstein relationship, I think, really starts somewhere in the the 90s. Um, Definitely not 2011, like the mainstream media says. And there's a lot of evidence to point that that is a bold-faced lie, that it was in 2011 for the first time. Um, But basically, you know, Epstein's essentially a a financial criminal. So where does his money come from? It comes from financial crimes. Uh, (laughs) I mean, he's basically money laundering uh, on a massive scale and, and helping people evade taxes in a way that was, I guess, innovative. And it's, um, you know, obviously helpful to him. 
and made him very rich. And so this idea that it all just came out of nowhere, I don't even think it was all necessarily given to him by Wexner necessarily. I think some of it was, I mean, he uh, was a financial criminal, very good at, very good at it. And a lot of it, I think too, had to do with this foreign foreign currency trading that he was always seen doing even after his arrests, um, you know, on computers and his residences and stuff. He was very involved in something odd when it came to foreign currency or forex trading uh, specifically and this even gets mentioned to bill clinton by one of his top donors lynn forrester now lynn forrester de rothschild who writes clinton a letter in 1995 that says basically that she was so grateful to have 15 minutes to talk to him about the two things on her mind at the time which were jeffrey epstein and currency stabilization and oddly enough, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild has a relationship with Deutsche Bank, which of course had very suspect connections with Epstein. And if you think about it, the only innocent person to die in connection with the Epstein case in recent years was the son of the judge that was going to oversee the Deutsche Bank uh, Epstein case. You have, you know, John Luke Brunel's dead, Mark Middleton's dead, Epstein's dead, and now Steve Hoffenberg's dead. But the only innocent person to turn up dead a connection with this is the son of a judge and basically there was a hit on the judge whether you believe the official story or uh, not it's very interesting that that popped up not on the the court cases involved with epstein's sex crimes but with his financial crimes wow this is absolutely mind-blowing i just want to go back to leon black again because yeah you said that epstein was doing this kind of financial advice but and I think Epstein's wealth was, that's a quarter of his wealth, 158 million. Isn't that financial advice, quote unquote, just a smokescreen for him financing the honey trap operation? Yeah, so I wouldn't believe the official numbers about Epstein's wealth. If he's an expert in tax evasion and like offshore banking and hiding looting money, <laughs> what's reported on paper is very, uh, it's very unlikely to be like his actual net worth. Um. Uh, I see in the chat that people are asking about the Lease family. So Douglas Lease, uh, who's a mentor to Epstein, obviously also involved in shady financial stuff. He was very involved in Bermuda, um, specifically managing the subsidy Bermuda subsidiary of what's called the Raxel Group, which appears to be tied actually to Lease's home in the UK. That's Raxel Manor, but it's not. The relationship isn't exactly clear. Um but but that entity involved with offshore banking to a significant degree, and of course Bermuda is as well. And that relationship, I think, the relationship with the leases is is very significant. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a lot we don't know about it. Um, but there are some things we can glean from it. And one other interesting character that's tied to Bermuda is this oil trader named John uh, Doyce or Deuce. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce his name, but it's spelled D-E-U-S-S. -S. And this is a guy that pops up with Bear Stearns foreign currency trading stuff at the end of the 90s in something in this particular software around Forex trading that Epstein's also involved with. And around the same time, one of the women that Epstein in that parallel sex trafficking operation I mentioned earlier, sort of the elite women, one of the women in that tier that actually accompanies Epstein to when he goes to the White House on at least one occasion in the 90s um, is a woman named Frances Hardeen, and she's married off to John Doyce. And John Doyce is also um, a very key part of this um, this intelligence organized crime network that I talk about in the book that ties in directly to Epstein. So sort of the precursor to this, 
to the group that later executes Iran Contra is basically what I call a private CIA that was more or less headed by this guy named Ted Shackley, who's a CIA OSS veteran. And when he goes private and sets up his private CEA, CIA um, during the Carter administration, his main bank, his main client for all his fronts and all this stuff is, is this John Doyce guy. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of interesting characters in Bermuda that, that pop up in the story. And of course, you know, Epstein's own finances pop up in, in some of these offshore leaks, um, that have come out in recent years. And he has, you know, uh, some of those vehicle financial vehicles he was using have overlap with, uh, Mark Rich companies like Glencore and Mark Rich, like John Doyce is also a very controversial commodity trader, uh, with overt intelligence ties as well, not necessarily to CIA people, uh, more to Israel people. Um, and also capital flight from the Soviet Union. And actually one of the companies he co-founded, uh, Nordex, ends up employing the Maxwell brothers, <laughs> Kevin and Ian, after Robert Maxwell's death, um, and is also involved in you know massive capital flight from the Soviet Union. And then the, one of the other guys that's in charge of it, um, named Grigory Luchowski, he ends up being involved in the same campaign finance scandal with Mark Middleton, um, and is involved with organized crime and, and, you know, uh, is very close uh, to this guy who's closely associated with sort of these mega group, quote unquote, billionaires in New York, um, specifically Steven Spielberg in that, in that particular orbit. So it's, it's pretty mental. Um, there's a lot going <laughs> going on here easily. Sorry if I got a little, um, you know, off the <laughs> off from answering your your initial question. But when it comes to the finance stuff, it's hard to know. We have some records, but there's a lot of stuff that like the records would have to be subpoenaed or like obtained as part of an official investigation because you know a lot of these are private offshore entities that don't respect freedom of information requests, right? Um, so really the only way to have definitive answers to a lot of this is to get those documents. And unfortunately, you know, people are asking about the client list, but they're not asking about the Epstein finance information. And I wish they would ask about both personally. We've only got about 10 minutes left. I had a few questions come in. So Verity wants to know, do you know of any evidence on Epstein's computers that could eventually come out? Um, I don't think it's going to come out. I think com some computers were seized, but they also gave them plenty of time. For example, uh, the island was raided, what, like over a month after Epstein was uh, arrested in his townhouse in New York initially raided, giving people ample amounts of time to scrub any sort of evidence from the computers uh, that were there. And then you have the case of Zorro Ranch, for example, never raided at all. Uh-oh. So, I mean, I guess it just comes down to what they would have taken from the New York townhouse and if they'll release it. And I think really all the parties here are extremely compromised. It's very unlikely that the FBI is going to let anything that was on there out. Because, again, this all ties back. They're trying to keep the focus specifically on very specific stuff with Epstein. It's a classic limited hangout. They They, they want you to only talk about Epstein sex crimes from 2000 to 2006. And that's it. Uh, mainstream media won't really cover anything beyond that. And that's because if you start pulling on the other stuff, particularly what Epstein was doing before the year 2000, a lot of other stuff starts to unravel very quickly. And so they're trying to keep it, you know, as limited as, as, as limited as they can, really. Um, 
there's so much to get into here because you're talking about a guy who has a a career spanning decades and he's, you know, middle management, I guess you could say for a lot of very big scandals going through these decades. So he has his hands in very, um, you know, complicated pies. Sorry, lack of imaginative metaphors today, but, (laughs) but basically, I mean, he, he, it's sort of like a meta scandal, you know, you sort of start pulling on one string and you unravel the whole web. You know what I mean? Um, and th- that's sort of how Epstein is. And, but because he's fills that type of niche throughout the decades, you're going to be unraveling multiple webs, you know, that are actual criminal conspiracies involving very high levels of government. And, you know, the FBI for a long time, for example, has just been a completely weaponized agency. I know people that are, you know, Trump supporters may see that only as a recent phenomena, but that's not true at all. And as I wrote about my uh, original series for Mint Press, and as I write about in the book, uh, the first director of the FBI was sexually blackmailed by organized crime to never go after organized crime. So the FBI doesn't go after these people more often than not. The FBI assist these people in covering up their crimes so yeah they're not going to release the tapes and they're not going to release the quote-unquote client list agent orange has asked does the octopus syndicate have any involvement yeah this basically is the octopus so i'm assuming that there is uh what um, so Danny Casolero, who's one of these promised so- software scandal related figures that dies in 1991, along with Robert Maxwell, Danny Casolero was obviously murdered. It was a staged suicide. He was a journalist investigating what he called the octopus. Um, but basically the octopus, you know, he saw it as this group involved in Iran-Contra, involved in the October surprise, involved in the promised software scandal, uh, involved in drug trafficking, um, all sorts of stuff. And it's basically organized crime and intelligence coming together. And, uh, and you know, I yeah, basically volume one of my book is about the octopus and how it came to be and where Epstein fits into it. Uh, it's it's pretty much the same group. Um, in Iran Contra testimony, they were they uh, referred to themselves as the enterprise, and I think that's pretty much yeah what they are. They're a business. It's a business, and all they care about is protecting the rackets. It, they don't have any national allegiance. It's transnational crime, but it's crime that pays. Big time. Mm-hmm. So Matthew Steeples has sent another question. Do you know about the 1994 investigations into Galan in London by the London Metropolitan Police? No, I didn't really look into, uh, unfortunately, I didn't really look in, into too much on the UK side of things because I was mainly focusing on, on Ep- the Epstein-Wexner-Clinton White House stuff. Um, in volume two in the book. So I do, I have one chapter that's devoted to Ghislaine, uh, but a lot of it, uh, unfortunately, not overtly uh, UK focused. There's a lot more to do on the, on the UK side of, uh, side of things, for sure. I did file a freedom of information request with Met Police, but that was about something different. That was about uh, two US senators uh, meeting at a Wexner owned residence in the UK that uh, had met police protection when the senators visited. And it seems like uh, that was an attempt by Epstein, an apparently successful attempt to sexually blackmail two sitting U.S. senators. So been uh, filed freedom of information request with the Met Police. They said no on national security grounds. 
<laughs> so, you know, I don't really expect the Met Police to be very cooperative with any sort of stuff. But um, thanks for the lead on that. Unfortunately, I won't be able to include, include it in my book because it comes out tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I also really would like to look into the other Maxwell siblings that mainly stayed focused in the UK. So the book, again, um, I get into Christine and Isabel Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's sisters. But again, they're focused very much in Silicon Valley and also Israel um, at that point. Um, and it's really Kevin and Ian that sort of stay in the UK stuff. And they're obviously involved in some sort of shady financial stuff. I'd like to look a lot more into uh, Kevin Maxwell's company, Telemond, um, at, at the, you know, in the in, into the 90s, early 2000s and stuff. But there's there's a lot more I'd like to, um, yeah, uh, check out. Lee wants to know whether there is a statute of limitations on the financial crimes you've described. Uh, sorry, what was that? He wants to know if there is a statute of limitations on the financial crimes you've described. Um, not, not sure. Not sure. Okay, my question is then, how blatantly was Jean-Luc Brunel suicided? Yeah, so I'm not aware of the circumstances of his death, but it's very obvious that there was some sort of motive to silence him. Um, I do talk about him considerably in chapter 18, which is the one about um, focused on sex trafficking, trafficking because of the whole model angle. Um, this whole thing, will you model for Victoria's Secret, all of that. You, John, that, that model that Epstein later followed was actually originally developed by Jean-Luc Brunel in the 1980s. Um, in Paris, and there was actually a 60 Minutes expose about it at the time. Um, and uh, but you know, again, lack of interest in pursuing this stuff because one of the main his main business partners that was also involved with Epstein in the modeling world and an apparent accessory to the sex trafficking stuff is the head of Next Models, which is a huge modeling agency in the United States. Uh, I can't remember her last name. I think her first name is Kate. Um, but you know, she was obviously like involved in some capacity, but there's a, you know, an effort to protect her there. Um, but John Luke Brunel was very central to a lot of the stuff going on here in a way that is uh, in terms of the sex trafficking stuff. And I don't think they wanted um, that to really come out either um because you know then it would have gotten into who were the clients i mean we know for example that powerful people like ehud barak are going around and visiting the apartments where a lot of these trafficked women were being housed particularly in the brunel part of the operation and stuff so uh it's 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 troubling uh and so i don't really think it's that surprising I, when it comes to the sex trafficking stuff i mean brunel's just as central really as, as maxwell is so have you, have you found any crossover with Peter Nygaard's case? No, I didn't. I didn't look for that. Um, I mean, again, I was trying to write one book. It ended up being 900 pages. So there's a lot of stuff I couldn't get into, unfortunately. You know, again, this is something that's spanning so many decades and has so many tendrils branching out from it. I mean, you could write a book about any of those tendrils. It's very hard to put ev literally everything in one book. So basically what I tried to do is um, make a, a, what I hope is a very convincing case to people about the intelligence ties of Epstein and um, a lot of the aspects of the case that haven't gotten mainstream media coverage and show how it fits into the power structure of the U.S. Because the important takeaway, again, is that Jeffrey Epstein had a network behind him. 
that enabled his activities and protected him for a, a considerable number of years. And that network precedes Epstein and it continues after he's gone. So the important thing to remember is let's use Epstein as a vehicle for exploring this group uh, because, you know, Epstein's gone. That doesn't mean the problem is gone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, mainstream media wants to treat it like that to be like, well, Bill Gates specifically in an interview when he was asked about Jeffrey Epstein, he's like, well, it doesn't matter. He's dead. That was basically his expression about it um and no that's not how it works um i mean they, they want us to think that that jeffrey epstein was the only bad billionaire um and now he's gone and everything's fine and that's no um i'm trying to disabuse people of that illusion in the book so again i hope this will be a uh, like a reference a starting point really for future investigations there's so i i, I sourced everything pretty exhaustively um very high quality sources um there's a lot to pick up on and there's a lot of different threads to follow you know i did my best to be comprehensive but again you know i can't make a three thousand page book and you know expect people to read it all i had to just you know start somewhere and, and try and make a cohesive piece but it's it's difficult to get it all into one book so Ash said that the book is showing is sold out on Amazon. So how could people get it? So in the UK, uh, as I understand, volume one is sold out uh, in uh, on Amazon. But UK Amazon, you can still order from the publisher in the US. But I understand that international shipping is a bit high. Uh, I've been told that a website called hive.co.uk uh, has the book available, volume one. And volume one comes out tomorrow. Uh, volume two comes out in a couple weeks. Um, it, you can also order the bundle through Trine Day and you'll get both books at the same time. So you'll get volume two earlier if you order the bundle through Trine Day. But again, international shipping is a bit complicated. Um, hopefully next month there will be an ebook and an audio book available. And that's both volumes together. So that may be more cost effective for, for some people. I'm going on the book depository now which provides free shipping worldwide and book depository is showing your book as available and people can order it through the book depository. So that's, um, I think they're a branch of okay, Amazon. Great. I think they are a branch of Amazon, the book depository, but it just provides uh, free shipping worldwide. So any, anywhere, anyone in the world can get the book and uh, just pay the price of the book. Yeah. Yeah, great. Right. We've run out of time. It's always been mind blowing with you, Whitney. Appreciate you know all the collabs we've done over the years. It's great to see that you've just exploded with all this information in literary form. So people, it's just... it's a very information <laughs> dense book. It's very dense. Uh, so it's not a fast read, but I think it's an important read. How can people uh, follow you? Are you still on on some of the platforms? Yeah, I'm on some. So um, I think they were posted here in the in the chat, but you can uh, I'm on Twitter still. I'm on Telegram, but not under my name on Telegram. Uh, I'm under Unlimited Hangout on Telegram and my website's Unlimited Hangout. You can sign up for my newsletter uh, by going to unlimitedhangout.com slash newsletter. So all updates about the book. Um, I have a podcast. I, I produce articles on many other topics besides Epstein. Uh, you're welcome to peruse all of that. Um, you know, whenever you wish <laughs> all right well huge thank you for coming on again and have a great rest of your day in chile take care whitney yeah thanks take care bye-bye